of anticipation for today's teaching time and for what God is going to do. Uh, those of you that have been with us for the last couple of months, you know that uh, God is moving in powerful ways. And uh, there's just been so much goodness. Last Sunday, um, if you were here, we had three groups of people. The Lord gave me this vision ahead of time for three groups of people that would be praying. And uh, we had one person who said yes to Jesus with Chris in the back. Uh, I think there was a group of about eight people over here with Nikki. And I, I'm, pr I, I'm not sure, I didn't get to talk with all of them, but I think most of them received their prayer language last Sunday. Uh, I did talk with one of them that was praying, and the Lord woke her up in the middle of the night with, with spirit language that she had never learned. Just woke up with language. And, and that's a prayer language that's powerful in the spirit. And then over here, we had a whole group of people praying for uh, the people that they're fishing for, that they're leading to Jesus. Um, one person told me from that group that the person she was praying for specifically, uh, when she got to the car, there was a text from that person on her phone. And, uh, and she got to have a very significant conversation. Last Sunday, I was praying when I was teaching on battling in the spirit. I was praying for Ian. Do you remember that? And, uh, and it was somebody that I have lost contact with, haven't talked to this person in eight years. And, uh, and I got to talk to him this week and I got to pray with him. Uh, very tender, very significant. Listen, guys, God is at work. God is at work. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. That's all I have to say about that. You ready? Good morning. You know, it, it struck me this morning, you know, we teach here at, at Connect that God is always talking. He's always got something to say. And oftentimes, the only barrier between him and us is us. Because his heart is always to make connections. And I was thinking this morning as um, these two precious little ones were being, actually, both, both of them um, are being raised by minister parents. Uh, because um, Ira and Emily are ministers with Chi Alpha. And um, JD and Becca are ministers to the youth here in our house. And I thought, how interesting, because I was reminded of, of being in Mexico and how when we went out to, the, to, the, to minister to um, different sections to bring um, baskets to folks in need, uh, the one street that we went down um, and prayed with people in I would see these little children bouncing around like here and there, and they looked like little lights to me. I could see that they were lit up. And I mentioned that to Juan Carlos, and he said, that's very interesting that you should say that because um, the, it's, not, it's not the leaders in the church that have led the, uh, the people to salvation, it's actually their children. And I'm hearing reports about that all around the world, that major missionary um, endeavors are changing their focus to children. Because the children, they get lit up by Jesus and those little lights, those flames, they, they take that home to mom and dad and brothers and sisters, grandmas, grandpas, neighbors, friends, and they catch fire too. And so when we dedicate um, babies, I, I, I don't think it's an accident that spring um, heralds new life um, because I believe that, uh, that children are so important to God and sometimes we lose sight of that. But I just want to say, you know, these this children, your children, your babies, they're born with a call. They actually are born knowing God. Romans talks about that. that they're, they're, they know the stamp of God is on them, and it's time and choices that sort of skew that. But 
God cares about them. And so, Father, you just release these lights. Release these lights into the world and make us a body of believers who value them the way that you value them. And we just thank you this morning. Well, if you have been with us, we are on week nine of our Gate Check series. And this takes place in the book of Nehemiah, which is in the Old Testament of your Bible. And let me just do a quick review. We've been making a circuit around the walls, checking the gates the way that Nehemiah did. He was a cupbearer to the king of Babylon, and um, he felt a burden to go back to the city of Jerusalem because he heard it was in shambles. And so he took it upon himself to ask God for the power to help rebuild. I think it's very interesting that he didn't wait for God. He just said, this is what I want to do, and said, God, will you go with me? And he said, absolutely. I just want to throw in here that some of us are waiting for God to speak, and God has just said, uh, if you just tell me your heart, I'll get behind you. Um. And so we've been doing this perimeter check in and of ourselves because we all are cities with walls. Uh, walls contain value th valuable things. You each are of great value. And so the challenge is to make sure, one, that the walls are up, and two, that the gates are functioning. Because how many of you know that a walled city without gates is a dead city? Nothing can come, nothing can go. And it's the same thing with you as a person, with your, your heart, your, your being. God has certain things that he wants you to be functioning in. And if you are closed up and isolated, you are going to miss certain things. And it will eventually take you out. That is the, that is the truth here. And as we've made the rounds around the city, we, you know, we're doing as Nehemiah did. He started with the sheep gate and then he made his way over to the west side and down to the south, and now we're coming back up on the east side of the perimeter. And every gate, the first, there are 10 in all, and the first five of those gates referred to a lot of things that we have choice in. The sheep gate, right, is salvation. And we, we talked about that. We talked about um, taking the trash out with the, the dung gate or the trash gate. And now um, the next five uh, gates, beginning with the fountain gate, are really gates that are characteristics of God. It's not about who we are, it's about who he is. And so we started with the fountain gate talking about Holy Spirit because these gates um, talk about the character of God, God as Father, as Holy Spirit, and as Jesus. And today we are, uh, we are talking about the east gate. And I have to keep correcting myself in my head from saying the Jesus gate. Um, so if I say that, don't correct me. Um, maybe it was Jesus. Um, because, <laughs> because it's a really powerful gate. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah 3.29. This is where the east gate is mentioned. And it's talking about doing uh, work around the gate. But let me just read it. It says, after them, the people who were repairing the gate before, Zadok, the son of Immer, carried out repairs in front of his house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, carried out repairs. Okay, let's just pray. Jesus, I have this burning in my bones over this message because I know, I know that you're in it. I know that it matters to you. And so I don't want to get in the way of whatever it is that you're doing. I also don't want it to be about me. And so would you just show up and show off? I, I'm simply a tool, and I want to give you the lead I ask that you would tear down and take down and wipe out any obstacles, any, um, anything that would come against what you want to do in the hearts and minds of your people today. And we partner with you. God, there, I, I'm nothing without you. You, um, you get the glory. 
you get the credit. And so we just give this to you in Jesus' name. All right, so here we are at the East Gate. Let me tell you a little bit about it. The East Gate still stands. It is also known as the Golden Gate. Now, don't go Googling San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge right now. Just say no. Um, it has nothing to do with that gate. <laughs> this is completely different, but it has been called the Golden Gate, the beautiful gate that's in Acts 3.2, the guy that was begging and, and Peter and John said famously, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. You remember? Okay, beautiful gate, that's the East Gate. And it's also called in Hebrew, Heb Sha'ar Harahamim which is the gate of mercy. So it's got a lot of cool connotations to it. Names are important. Um, it is currently right now, if you go to Israel one day, I'm going to go there. But right now, if you were to go there, you could stand before the East Gate. It still exists. In fact, it is currently the oldest gate in the old city. Um, it was constructed in the 6th or 7th century B.C., has been here a long time, likely by Solomon. There's a little bit, some aren't sure. Now, I got to get, I, I got to tell you about the gate before I tell you about the gate. Okay? So just hang in with me. Okay? I am your guide. Um, this is the gate that gives the most direct access to the Temple Mount. All right? So if a person could pass through the arches of the Eastern Gate, he would be very close to where that Jewish temple used to stand. Um, this is where Jesus entered Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, the triumphal entry, which we are about to celebrate in a few weeks, right? And he went from there into the temple after he'd woven a whip, right? And then he threw the money changers out because they were crooked. And he said, you're not, not in my father's house. Remember that? He came from this gate. Now, this gate has been rebuilt three or four times, um, and we know this archaeologically. This isn't hearsay. This isn't because I'm a Jesus believer, so everything in this book is, is good. No, no, it, it's actually been substantiated historically. All right? Solomon or Hezekiah, one of those two kings, built this gate in 960 or 715 B.C., um, and then Nehemiah, that's the first time it was built. And then Nehemiah came around in 444 B.C., and he rebuilt it. We're talking about him uh, in this series. Later on, Herod the Great in 19 B.C. came, and he rebuilt it. And then during the Umayyad period, which was 661 to 750 A.D., some guy known as Shushan, or some, some guy known, or no, I'm sorry, uh, it was rebuilt there. We don't know. There was no information that I could find on who was responsible for rebuilding it, but it was called the Shushan Gate. Now, you have to understand that every time the gates were rebuilt, sometimes they would rename them. So that's why there's a lot of different names. Then along comes in 1541 A.D. Suleiman the Magnificent. Now, there are some other really significant things about this gate because, listen, and, and for those of you who have not been with us, you're probably wondering why in the world is she talking about these gates? Well, how does that, what does that have to do with me today? Well, I believe that if it's in the Bible, there's purpose for it, not just for historical uh, reference, but also because prophetically God still speaks. And so there's something in this that we can take away from it. So we're on this ribbon chase, this journey to come to the end of, of what this gate has for you and me. Now, <clears throat> this gate was prophesied uh, about in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 10, 18, and 19, if you want to check that out. It says, then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings, they rose up from the earth in my sight. This is uh, Ezekiel the prophet seeing a vision, and he says, with wheels beside them, that's the seraphim, and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the Lord God of Israel hovered over them. And 
what he's saying is in this, in this uh, prophecy, he's prophesying that the glory of the Lord left the temple. He, at this point, it would leave, which it did, the temple. And <clears throat> then Ezekiel 11.23 says, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. So, so the glory of the Lord moves from the center of the temple, moves to the gate, and then it moves out of the gate, across the way, to the Mount of Olives. So the glory of the Lord departed the city through the east gate. Now, the other prophetic reference talks about the glory of the Lord returning in Christ's second coming through this gate. So if you go to Ezekiel 43, 1 through 5, he again prophesies, the prophet Ezekiel says, then he... Uh, led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the, of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I had seen, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chebar, and I fell on my face, and it says in verse 4, And the glory of the Lord came into the house by way of the gate facing toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me further on, dot, 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 on it goes. Zechariah, who was also a prophet, says this in 14.4, In that day, his, Jesus, Messiah, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west in a very large valley. So half the mountain will move toward the north, the other half toward the south. The east gate has been prophesied as the place by which Jesus will return again. You can imagine the significance of this gate. Whether, no matter who you are, there's significance. We're going to get into that. Now, <clears throat> Today, the Eastern Gate, if you go there, the Eastern Gate is shut. It's been shut for quite a while. Do you want to know what shut it? Well, let me tell you. Okay, the first time it was closed by the Muslims in 810 uh, AD. Then it was reopened again uh, in 1102 AD by the Crusaders. And then this was where... This is interesting. It was walled up by the Ottoman Sultan Suleiman. We talked about him before. Now there's a story with this. That the way that historians tell it is that when the Ottoman Empire overcame the Israelites, uh, Israel back in the day, in the 1500s, um, there was word the, that the, the Sultan uh, Suleiman heard from, they say, Jews in the city, and they said, well, we're looking for Messiah to return through this east gate. Well, he's Muslim, and he's like, uh, not on my watch. So he blocked that gate with six feet um, deep of cement, of concrete, and bricks, that baby is walled up. But here's what's interesting. He didn't just wall up the gate. He also decided that if, if Messiah was coming, chances are if you want to offend Messiah, you should probably bury a bunch of Muslims at the entrance of the gate. So then he's not going to cross over that cemetery into the east gate. Well, they, they don't know our Jesus. Like He's not offended by death. He never has been. <laughs> he overcame it. But at any rate, there, if you go there, and you can see in the picture, I don't remember when it was shown, but if you look at the picture, there's these little stones and stuff. That's, that's the graveyard that Suleiman put there to try and prevent Messiah coming through the East Gate. Now, why does it remain shut, though? I mean, obviously, it's, there's still conflict in the Middle East, but it's interesting, I want to propose to you, first of all, um, this wasn't news to the Jews. Ezekiel, once again, in 44, chapter 44, says this. It says, then he, Messiah, or no, I'm sorry, he is the Spirit of the Lord, brought me back by the way of the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces the east, and it was shut. It's, and then it says, the Lord said to me, 
This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, he shall sit in it as prince to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the porch of the gate and shall go out by the same way. Now I want to propose to you that it remains shut due to conflict. The first, the first one was that the Muslims, they don't believe in Jesus. So they shut it to prevent that, right? Jesus was just a prophet in the Muslim faith. But the Jews, they don't believe in Jesus Messiah either. So even though Jesus had already been and gone through the East Gate, we have it in the four Gospels, they don't recognize him as Messiah. And so they shut it and left it shut saying, nobody but Messiah can come through that gate except for he already did. And that's kind of interesting to me because if you look again back at that uh, Ezekiel 44, it says in there that even though, because keeping in mind the Jews are still looking for Messiah, but, but the word says, the prophetic word says, this gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. Now I read that as Messiah has already come. He's coming again, but that gate is blocked marking the fact that he has been here. Now, <clears throat> many of us here in this room probably don't question whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. We probably also don't question whether or not he's going to come again. I, I do want to say this. How many of you know that nobody knows Jesus will return again? If you open your Bibles to Matthew, you don't have to do this now, but you can do this on your own time, Matthew 24. Is follows Matthew 23, believe it or not. And in chapter 23, the disciples were asking Jesus three questions. And one of those questions was, when will you come again? And Jesus' answer is very short regarding that question. He says, no one knows. No one knows but the Father. In fact, he further confirms that in Matthew chapter 25 with the parable of the virgins. Remember, five were good and ten were not so good and so he says he says to them listen um in that parable with his which is a jewish wedding the only one who knows when the groom will be sent to get his bride is who the father of the groom so if you hear people saying jesus is coming in 2025 which would be awesome it's probably not god because even Jesus doesn't know when Jesus is coming again. I think just, I just, just think that we should probably listen to what the Bible says. Okay, just, just fair warning. Now, <clears throat> no matter when it is that Jesus comes, listen, he is moving. Holy Spirit is moving. And this is really where we're going to start taking a deep dive here. I believe that the world is about to experience a move of God the like of which we have never seen before. It will not be like any other revival that has hit the earth. It, it doesn't matter how you got saved or when you got saved, there is something new that is coming. And we wanna be prepared for it. And my concern in, in this is that we need to be really really careful about preconceived notions that might lead us to offense because, see, offense leads to conflict, and it's conflict that shuts the gate. It doesn't just shut it, it blocks it. It has no function. And we don't want to be there with this East Gate, the Jesus Gate. It's too easy to be offended. It's not very easy to forgive. Have you figured that out in your life? I sure have figured it out in mine. Real easy to get offended. So my question this morning is, how is your gate? How vulnerable are you to offense? Have you already succumbed? Let's, let's take a look at this because, listen, 
It's time to open the gate to a Jesus move. I was thinking about this and praying about this this morning, and um, I, I had written the outline for this series because I felt like Holy Spirit was saying, listen, um, I, I wanna give you all a heads up. There's a move that's coming, and I want you to get involved. I don't want you to miss it because you've got certain gates out of order in your life. I want you to be prepared. I want you to, I want you to be in such a place that you can receive everything that I have for you because he is so good. We are our greatest opposition to a move of God. And so as we've traveled through this gate series, we've been dealing with, with certain things here and there, and this is no different. But I feel like this morning there's an urgency in my spirit. I had, was given a prophetic word. I wasn't going to share this, but I, I feel like it's just important because it's, it's informed my heart on this. Um, someone gave me a prophetic vision about waves. And in this vision, I was on the shore my back was to the water, and there was a glorious sunset here, and, uh, but I was just getting tumbled by these big waves coming in. I didn't know waves come in sets. Look it up, it's interesting. And I was just getting hammered by this water. And then uh, the, the, the lower waves came in in their, in their turn, and I was able to stand up and catch my breath. And then the voice of the Lord said, hey, turn around and look at the wave. You have the power. Now duck dive into the big one because it's coming. Duck dive in. And that's where you, I don't do this because there are sharks in the ocean. Um, <clears throat> so it's not going to be me in there. But I'm just saying, like prophetically speaking. Um, if I am told that if a big wave comes your way, if you don't want to be pummeled by it, you got to dive into it. That's called a duck dive. That's what I'm told. So I said to God, because God understands me and sharks, I'm telling you I am a dinner bell if I go into the ocean. It's ding-a-ling-a-ling, dinner time, come and get it. So I just say no. I just say no. Um, but anyway, oh God, where are you? Um, so this so moved me, and I was like, God, there's more to this. Like, I, I, I knew immediately what the first application was, but then I felt like he just said, there's more to that. There's more to it. There's more to it. And listen, I, I love you. My heart is for the church. I love the church. Um, and he spoke to me as I was praying in preparation for this, and he said, that wave is the next move. And my people, if they will turn and face it, which is where the sun is, if they will turn and face it, and instead of trying to run or ignore or whatever, react and dive into it instead, it will not take them out and they'll be blessed. But you have to tell them, you need to understand that when God moves, I feel that when God moves in this next wave, it will will have the potential to offend. And we need to be aware of that because how we set ourselves, how we set our hearts toward that is gonna impact what we get out of it. And listen, I don't know about y'all, but I don't wanna be left behind. If there's anything I hate, it's being left behind. And I'm like, God, don't leave me out. Like, don't leave me out. And he's like, great news, great news, Kelly, you get to choose. Turn into it, face it, and jump in. And so that is what was behind this word this morning because um, the, there are two offenses that I see that can really impact where you are in a move of God. The first one is church people offended by change. Okay, Matthew 11, two through six. It says, let me give you just a little backstory. Of course, John the Baptist was the first one before Jesus who came, saying, there is Messiah, he is coming, right? We all, most of us know this. And, and so 
he ends up baptizing Jesus and he sends his, a lot of his followers, he says, follow him, he's the lamb, follow him. In the meantime, John, he'd spent his life rugged, man. He's in the wilderness, he's like wearing yucky skins, like animal skins, and he is eating disgusting grasshoppers. I don't know, uh, people say they're okay, but I just think the little hooks on their legs would be untidy. Um, this guy is hardcore. And he lived a life that was an absolute dedication to God because he was the one sent with the message. So then Jesus shows up. Now Jesus, uh, he does his thing. But it's completely different from the way that John was doing it. John ends up imprisoned because he offends the queen. And... He sends word to Jesus, and that's where we catch him here in 11.2. It says, um, now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? You know what he was really saying there? Listen, we've been fasting, you're feasting. I'm a little offended. Like, are you, are you really the guy? Okay, and it says, Jesus answered and said to him, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, listen to this, blessed is he, John, who does not take offense at me. I love the way the passion words it, it says, and tell John that the blessing of heaven comes to those who are not offended over me. Because Jesus has a track record, actually, a history of showing up and doing the unexpected. He was never sent to appease religion. He was always one to challenge it. And I would... I would propose that the greatest opposition of a move of Jesus is often a religious spirit amongst Christians. And, and he has, ex Jesus experienced that from the beginning. They weren't saved, I understand that, but you, you're tracking. Listen to this, Ian Mullins, from, uh, he wrote a book called Prepare the Way for Revival. He says this, he says, uh, from a safe distance of several hundred years or several thousand miles, revival clearly looms exciting and wonderful. The strange things about revivals, however, is that while they are so longed for in times of barrenness, they are often opposed and feared when they arrive. Why? Because revival is threatening. It disturbs the established order of things, and this brings conflict, fear, division, even opposition from other Christians. My understanding in the research that I've done of the world's greatest revivals is, is that most revivals appear like this. Inconvenient, disruptive, awkward, uncomfortable, unscripted, messy, consuming. They are uncomfortable. And we say, oh no, dude, I'm, I'm totally chill with that. I'm totally chill with that. We, that's what we say. But think of the, the, the Jesus movement. How many of you have seen the Jesus Revolution movie? That was a very clear example of, of what offense toward a move of God can look like. But that's just one. How about Asbury, the college that just gotten rocked by a move of God? You know, they, they've struggled. I, can you imagine their professors? Oh my gosh, we're a learning institute and nobody's going to class. How are we going to grade? Finals are coming up, the end of the year. Who do we pass? Who do we fail? What does this look like? Yeah, <laughs> says the professor. Listen to this. In revivals, the person of Christ becomes center stage, accompanied by a longing to be with him and to shift all priorities to accommodate him. Like, I, w I wonder, I wonder, if God moves in connect, um, are we going to be upset because somebody's going to have to pay, okay, you and me, we're going to have to pay more for the power bill. 
What if the building never shuts? Who's gonna stay here? Who's gonna clean it? What if funky, funky things start happening and you've never seen it before and and you start going, oh my gosh. Like, who's gonna keep it on the straight and narrow? What if God moves so big and we are not prepared? The Welsh revival was a big revival, changed the whole world. It happened in 1904. Um, That's when it began. It's considered one of the most impacting revivals since Pentecost. Many know of the revivalist Evan Roberts, who was associated with the awakening along with other great communicators, but it was none of these speakers or committee programs that lit the fuse. The fuse was lit in a weekly youth group meeting in New Key, Cardigan, Wales on February 14, 1904, Pastor Joseph Jenkins asked the question, what does Jesus mean to you? 14-year-old Flory Evans stood up in a meeting and cried out, I love Jesus with all my heart. Her heartfelt profession was like a Holy Spirit lightning strike in the congregation, and the whole meeting caught fire. Person after person arose and made full surrender to Christ. A visiting evangelist, he tried to close the worship service, but it went on, quote, it went on beyond human control. Listen, guys, you know, it's like, it's like nine. Like, my bedtime was at 8.45, and um, it's still going on. We probably should, like, bring this to the close. Like, bring it to a close. Like, come on, let's close it. Let's close. No, it doesn't close. Because funny, God does whatever he wants. Now the news of the service spread throughout the area as young people testified in other churches. Those words became the first drops of an international divine downpour as fire quickly spread to young people in the Cardiganshire area. For Flory, little did she know that her fiery heart and zeal for Jesus could thaw nations in a massive revival. When the lost see a supernatural Love-struck look upon us. They are drawn to Jesus as if by divine magnetism. Listen, it was unexpected that a 14-year-old girl would be the one to ignite the flame. But she was, thank God, she was in a place that gave her space to do what God was telling her to do. What if a nine-year-old boy stands up and is the cause of an outpouring? Have we made room for that? Or are we going to say, well, that was, that was cute. Are you, are you hearing me? Where are the nine-year-old boys? I listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to shake, well, yes, I am. I'm always trying to shake things up. What I'm saying to you is, if God moves back there, we better make room for it to come in here. We don't know what this will look like, but we do know that we can be ready for it by saying, yes, God. Yes, God. Now, here, I I wrote these things down because sometimes we don't know that we're offended. And so maybe you don't know you're offended. Let me give you some cues. This is for me as well. I was raised churched. I got issues. You may be offended if you have nothing positive to say. You may be offended if you find plenty to criticize and very little to praise. You might be offended if you compare yourself, your past, your practices, your strengths, your weaknesses, your dress, your speech, etc., in order to confirm that you really are better than everybody else. It's called elitism. It's dangerous. You may be offended if you feel threatened. You might be offended if you're unwilling to try. Just try. It's awkward. Try. You might be offended if you're too proud to learn or to grow. Look down your back trail. How far have you come? Are you still where you were then, five years ago? If you are, something's wrong. Reconnect. I don't, I don't want to skip over anything. I, I don't want to skip over anything. 
but I just feel like we just keep, need to keep moving. So let's go on to the second major offense I, I see as critical here. De-churched people who are offended by church. Acts 2.42, this is a snapshot of the first century church. This is so exciting to me. This is so exciting to me. Okay, just, just listen. It says, every believer, this is out of the TPT, every believer was faithfully devoted to following the teachers, uh, teachings of the apostles. Their hearts were mutually linked to one another, sharing communion and coming together regularly for prayer. A deep sense of holy awe swept over everyone, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. All the believers were in fellowship as one body, and they shared with one another whatever they had. Out of generosity, they even sold their assets to distribute to the proceeds, to distribute the proceeds to those who were in need among them. Daily, they met together in the temple courts and in one another's homes to celebrate communion. They shared meals together with joyful hearts and tender humility. They were continually filled with praises to God, enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were coming to life. We have a snapshot here, a picture of a group of, listen, this is as Harold Eberly said it recently. He said, we are all Jesus followers. We are also a community of Jesus followers. We are not just individuals. We are community. It has, it, it was begun way back in the beginning. It's why we still believe in meeting together. It's important. It's important to God's heart. I have this question that was asked to, to myself. Um, gosh, um, do I know about enough about the person sitting next to me to be able to meet their needs? It's a simple question. How can I pray for you? H have we done the work? That was basic Christianity 101 in the first century church. That's why meeting together was critical. And these guys turned the world upside down. Why? Because they were living in a culture that did not believe in compassion. They were being persecuted and punished for what they believed. The, the, the punishment did not align with the crime because they lived in a compassionless society. And all of a sudden, these people get lit up with Jesus and they, all of a sudden, this, this stuff called love starts flowing. And people who'd never tasted the love of a father said, oh my God, I must have it. And how was that love expressed, fellow believers? That's who we are to one another. We are the love of Jesus. That's why it's so important. That's why it's detrimental. And listen, the church has a lot of funk. I know this better than anybody else. I have served in church my whole life. I began singing in church when I was four years old. I started leading in church when I was 15. I've been serving for a really long time. I'm getting old. And I have been burned by church, by Big C Church, right? There are so many who are. Years back, I had been leading worship and my family had been going to a church and we were a mobile church and so you can imagine sitting up the chairs, setting up the chairs every Sunday and taking them down. A lot of work, a lot of work. And after a while, I heard my, my family, our family got involved because my husband's always served um, in the sound tech uh, ministry uh, and so... Part of that was making sure that everything is where it needs to be before people start showing up. And so our family would, with our four little kids, we would, we would be the ones, they were getting older at that time, junior high, high school, and they started, we, we, would, we would set up the church and we looked around after years of doing this and we were the only ones showing up, not even the pastor and their four kids would show up to set up the church. And <clears throat> listen, service is good for us. Don't get me wrong. But when I heard my kids saying, I don't want to go to church because all it is is free labor for the church. We're just slaves and nobody appreciates it. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not my Jesus. Like, okay. And so we stepped back for three years. We didn't go anywhere. 
I, to be honest with you, I didn't plan on ever coming back because I didn't see the institution changing. And it was one of our kids that said, listen, I, we need community. Even, even the young know that Jesus has done best together. And uh, we ended up in Connect. You're welcome. <laughs> But here's, here's how God changed my heart on this. Listen, I know he values the church because Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. He gave himself up for her. For her. Ephesians 1.18-23 says, I pray that the light of God will illuminate the eyes of your imagination, flooding you with light. Listen, Paul's writing to a church. He says, until you experience the full revelation of the hope of his calling, that is, the wealth of God's glorious inheritances that he finds in us, his holy ones, I pray that you will continually experience the immeasurable greatness of God's power made available to you through faith. Then your lives will be an advertisement of this immense power as it works through you. This is the mighty power that was released when God raised Christ up from the dead and exalted him to the place of highest honor and supreme authority in the heavenly realm. And now he is exalted as first above every ruler, authority, government, and realm of power in existence. He is gloriously enthroned over every name that is ever praised, not only in this age, but in the age that is coming. And he alone is the leader and source of everything needed in the church. God has put everything beneath the authority of Jesus Christ. That includes the church. And he's given him the highest rank above all others. And now we, his church, are his body on the earth. And that which fills him who is being filled by it. I want to propose to you, you don't get the goods if you don't follow through and do it all. That includes meeting with really difficult people. That includes organizations run by screwed up people. I am the most screwed up person I know, and I am in charge. Pray for me. Listen, when I came back into, into church, God said to me, listen, you absolutely have a choice. If there's something there you don't like, guess what you can do? Change it. Of course, you don't make change in the kingdom if you don't love. You don't make change in the kingdom if you aren't humble. You got to go low in order to see things changed because it's the, it's the Jesus in you that has the greatest impact. Your offense will do nothing but cause opposition. Get it right with Jesus first. Hebrews 10, 24 says, discover creative ways to encourage others and to motivate them toward acts of compassion, doing beautiful works as expressions of love. This is not the time to pull away and neglect meeting together, as some have formed the habit of doing. In fact, we should come together even more frequently, eager to encourage and urge each other onward as we anticipate that day of dawning. Listen. When the, when the first pe folks that got set free, set free from their culture, set free from their religion, set free from all of their misconceptions of God, they couldn't get enough of meeting together and saying, oh my word, God, you're gonna show up here. God, you're gonna move here. I'll give you it all. I'll give you my heart. I'll give you my time. I'll give you my money. I just got to have you. To them, it was everything. They understood the stark contrast between where they had been and where they now were, and they couldn't get enough of it. Have we become so satisfied with the religious form of God that we are unwilling to say, listen, there was a lot of ugly in those days too. People were messed up. But when two or three are gathered together in Jesus' name, there he is in the midst of them. 
There are a lot of things you can do with God on your own. But there are a whole lot more you're probably not going to do without a community of Jesus believers. Sometimes we just have to, we just have to position ourselves in such a way that we say, boy, um, I, I, guess, I guess it doesn't really matter how I feel about the thing. If you're calling me, which he always is, then I'll just give you my yes and we'll just see what happens. God, I just, I just want to right now, I just want to address this offense with the church. The church is in one of the greatest reformations, but I, I want to tell you that a, ref, a, ref, a reformative work of God historically does not happen prior to a move of God. It happens as the result of a move of God. God, would you put to death offense in our hearts and in our minds? We talk to people every single day who do not come to church because they got burned. Father, forgive us. God, I, I want to take responsibility. I, I'll take responsibility. God, I don't want people to not know my Jesus, to not come into a place where you are being discussed, where you are being sought after, where you are being cried for because there's offense, somebody did it wrong. I'll, I'll take that responsibility, God. It just, forgive me. Forgive me, forgive me for all of the times where I've said the wrong thing, I've done the wrong thing because I, I'm, I'm, I'm just as messed up as anybody else. I get in the way all the time, I talk too much. I know too much, I've seen too much. God. Start with me. I just want to say to those of you who have been burned, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. We do the best we can with what we have. I don't want to be the reason that you miss out on all of the fullness of what Jesus has for you. And there's a lot of fullness that comes in groups. In Jesus' community. Forgive me. It's not, it's not theatrics. It's, it's just a, maybe the person who wronged you will never see you again. And maybe they'll never get it. But listen, I, I know this stuff is real. And it impacts your life. So forgive me. You know, the truth is, the truth is that God loves you so much more than you are struggling. Does that make sense? He, there's no one disqualified from the realness of God. There's no one disqualified from being used by God as a vessel. We get in our own way, and I am just putting out a declaration today against a spirit of defense, I come, or of offense. I command you to go in Jesus' name. Set these people free. How's your gate? How's your Jesus gate? You're here for a reason and there are great things coming. Let's not miss it in exchange for something less. I don't know where to go from here. <laughs> I've totally messed up my outline. 
<laughs> I love you. Shall I leave? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I know what the Lord is saying to me. Okay, then I'm going to leave. Okay. Okay. Kelly brought this word to our team on Tuesday. And as soon as she started talking about de-churched people being offended by the church, something deep inside of me began stirring. Chris and I moved to this valley almost 16 years ago. And the mandate the Lord had put on our hearts was to reach unchurched people. And, uh, and the Lord was so generous and brought us people who had no church history, no church memory. And it was beautiful. We thought that was what God was doing with us. And then what took us by surprise is when people who were de-churched started coming to connect. We didn't see that coming. We didn't know it would happen. And it was our honor to be able to embrace people like the Hostetter family who had been out of church for a long time and, and help them bandage their wounds a little bit. And, um, begin to heal. Noah, that music is lovely, and I know I asked for it, but it doesn't feel right right now. <laughs> and then over the course of time, you know, you just walk out what it means to lead a church. And one of the things that was awful for me and for Chris was when conflict would happen and people left Connect because I hurt them or another leader hurt them. And we had this, we had this privilege of pulling people in who were de-churched and reconciling them to church. And then we became the cause of the offense. And over the years, whenever that has happened, it's been heartbreaking for me. Because I don't want to ever be the person that becomes a blockade to Jesus and his people. And so on Tuesday, when Kelly was sharing this, immediately what I sensed the Lord saying in my heart was, that I just wanted to say to those of you that I have hurt, I'm so sorry for hurting you. And I want to ask you to please forgive me. And I've looked around the room and, and I know there are some of you that are here. And there's a fence between me and you. And I want to say I'm sorry. And I want to say please forgive me. Please forgive me. And the second thing I want to say is this. Some of you are here and you are still carrying wounds from other pastors. Today, could I be the surrogate? That's not the right word. Could I be the stand-in for that person who hurt you? You've probably lost touch with that person. You probably don't know where they are. Maybe they're dead. 
Maybe you don't have any way of, con maybe it wouldn't be safe for you to contact them. But would you, would you forgive me in their place? Do you understand what I'm saying? Because I think what Kelly shared today is spot on. There's a move of God happening and a fence is gonna block up the gate of the move of God. We can't afford it. So I feel like today is a day of forgiveness. Musicians, would you come?